0: And welcome to another podcast for The Diplomat. With me is Greg Barton, a very well-known senior lecturer from Deakin University in Australia and certainly one of the region's foremost experts on counter-terrorism, Indonesia and a whole host of other subjects which we're about to discuss. Greg, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Luke. Good to be with you. Last time we met was in Jakarta before the elections in Indonesia. Since then, we've had... Uh, elections in Australia, Indonesia and India and in all three countries the governments of the day have won and that has policy ramifications going forward particularly in terms of security strategies in the Indian Ocean, north of Australia and in the Pacific Ocean. How do you see the victories for uh, in these three countries and the policy ramifications over the coming years? Look, the most important
1: victory, I think, is uh, is that of Indonesia. Uh, I think that was most consequential in terms of the way Indonesia could have turned. Obviously, our Indian friends would would say that the yeah. uh, the larger um, democracy of India is is even more important. I can't disagree with that. But it it it's not surprising that Modi was returned in India, and that seemed to be inevitable. What is surprising is Congress did as, as absolutely badly as it did. Uh, It's also not surprising that uh, Joko Widodo, Jokowi, did as well as he did in Indonesia, at least that he was returned, Mm -hmm. Um, but it it was certainly possible that uh, rising authoritarian populism manifested through uh, Prabowo Subianto, former uh, head of special forces, of course, infamously a former son-in-law of uh, Suharto, sure, and, and a man given to uh, projecting an image of himself, you know, based on a combination of of Mussolini and Sukarno, literally, may have had a surprise upset. Um, he continues, of course, to claim that the, the numbers were his way, but uh, why it was so important in Indonesia was after twenty years of of democracy and steady uh, consolidation. Uh, Although it's always in Indonesia a case of muddling through two steps forward, one step backwards, to go to an uncertain president, and we don't know what sort of president Prabowo would have been, but he would have, by all indications, been some form of authoritarian populist, maybe sort of moderate, but nevertheless uh, very likely giving more space to hardline elements in the military, perhaps a, a stronger military role in government. And certainly, although he's personally moderate in his religious behavior, he's um, opportunistically engaged with sectarian forces, uh, Islamist extreme forces. We saw this in a kind of precursor to the um, presidential legislative election of uh, April 17, 2019, with the 2017 governorial election in Jakarta. And we had those um, famous uh, 2nd of December, 212 mass protests, hundreds of thousands of people on the street right. for a variety of reasons, but partly because um, people behind the scenes in were prepared to play with sectarian forces. So that had a lot of people worried. Now, yep. arguably, sectarian forces are very much in play in India as well, uh, but in, in a way that was less of a surprise. Uh, in all three cases, though, we have to acknowledge that people voted uh, in a way that was fairly robust and transparent for uh, leaders and parties they felt comfortable with for reasons that many political analysts would say are not too sophisticated, but politics is not about what political analysts think, political scientists think. It, it, it's about what the average person feels comfortable with. Right. And these were largely domestic reasons, perceptions based around strength of the economy, etc. So the Indonesian economy is doing, doing, been doing well. Uh, Jokowi's been very clear about committing to infrastructure development, and for most people that was that was enough to feel comfortable with him. They, of course, many were uncomfortable with what Prabowo may have bought. Modi uh, has a lot of people worried, uh, particularly outside India and India's minority communities, particularly its Muslim community, uh, but for many Indians he's seen as a dynamic, stable force who's getting on doing stuff, and they're used to... um a history of, of political parties that are very self serving and, and very opaque in what they're trying to do. So Modi continues to inspire confidence. And in Australia, uh, Scott Morrison, uh, credit where credit's due, won what was considered an, unwinn- an unwinnable election. He pulled off quite a, a remarkable achievement. He did that by presenting a small target, uh, literally keeping his colleagues uh, off stage putting the focus on himself and not really talking about policy, apart some some vague promises about reducing taxes and uh, uh-huh. playing into a, uh, a moderate scare campaign, thankfully not sectarian, uh, but a moderate scare pan- campaign, picking up on, on quite complex um, uh, policy announcements that Labour had uh, positioned and presenting them as being a tax on pensioners and a threat to economic stability, along with an element of cultural wars. So... We can disagree with the choices of of voters as journalists and as as researchers, Uh, but the reality is people voted for those that they felt comfortable with, and all three governments, all three leaders are not big on foreign policy. Foreign policy doesn't figure in elections anyway with uh, Mm -hmm. with democracies by and large. And arguably in the case of Modi and Morrison, there wasn't a lot of new policy announcements either. It was more a question of what people felt comfortable with and, and where they were going. So it's not going to impact in... A series of um, significant policies uh, in terms of foreign policy and regional architecture it's probably not going to change things but it it, it will be uh, stability which given the alternative is probably a very welcome thing ironically in countries such as china where we have certainly the rise of authoritarian populism and we don't have democracy foreign policy becomes an issue not because it's important in itself but because it plays into a domestic narrative about making china great again and there is an element of that in modi's Uh, rhetoric, although it doesn't result in a whole lot of uh, articulated foreign policy positions,
0: so it's probably not going to change the region very much. Right, and this is what intrigues me. Before the elections and uh, quietly in diplomatic levels, uh, people have been talking about two strategies to contain China, which is an ugly word, containment, Mm -hmm. nevertheless uh, in particular between Australia, India and Indonesia. And Chinese expansionist policies into the Indian Ocean and to the and into the Pacific Ocean, all three countries seen as quite important in that broad strategy. There were two options are on the table. One is a trilateral relationship between Australia, Indonesia, and India. The other is Indo-PAC, which includes uh, the United States and Japan, and possibly other countries. However, other countries are sort of torn with the Indo-PAC because of the involvement of Donald Trump, it seems to be pushing countries into deciding whose side are you on, the United States or China, and no one wants to be in that situation. And with the re-election of all three governments, I think we're going to see a push further in that direction.
1: I don't know that there's a lot of will to be seen to be containing China. There's a more reasonable way of saying that there's a need to balance China. So. If you had weak countries in Southeast Asia and South Asia...
0: Cambodia, for instance.
1: Yeah, if Cambodia is a great example, then that means a strong China will have its way. I don't think we're talking about territorial extension. We are mm-hmm. talking about greater blue-water navy capacity. We're talking about a, uh, now a permanent presence in the South China Sea. Uh, we're talking more about um, the ability to to use a combination of hard power and economic power. we we'll would be saying too much to call it smart power, but a, an ability to influence chinese language press uh, business communities through investment and just intimidation so in cambodia's case it's it's a case of just the power of investment and buying out vested interests in a society mm-hmm. that's not very open vietnam despite being a communist country has got a much more robust economy and a robust leadership so in a, a strong history standing up to china so that's an example of just balancing china a strong india is a natural balance to china a strong Indonesia, a strong Australia. These countries are not going to take on China directly for the most part, nor will they work in any comprehensive, systematic, coordinated, um, multilateral fashion, I wouldn't think. I think they'll, they'll come together with those common interests and, and where they see uh, something making sense. I think we exaggerate the extent to which we're going to see some complex new multilateral architecture emerge specifically to engage on the, on the China issue. I just don't see that happening.
0: Right, but we are seeing the uh, protests in Hong Kong. Some people are saying that the latest protest was up to 2 million and there is an extraordinary resentment of China building around the region, particularly in countries like Cambodia. And I'm not talking about among the governments, I mean among the people who are seen the investments come in, but not necessarily too many dollars in their pockets. Uh, and I'm wondering if there has been a change in attitude to China. Have things changed in terms of how China is, is being dealt with? Well, I think what's changed is
1: China has changed. I mean, China uh, was on a trajectory broadly towards very impressive poverty reduction and economic development, but there was twined with that the hope that it would also be accompanied with greater openness. I mean, China has been investing massively, not just in physical infrastructure, mm-hmm. but in human capital and education. Uh, so there has been for a long time a, a real sense that a, a more educated, more prosperous, stable
0: China would be a more open China. Right. And I remember arguments that came from the business community. they were basically telling journalists and human rights activists to Shut up and go away, and that with economic prosperity in China, human rights would also improve. But under the current leadership, that doesn't seem to have happened at all. Well, the dilemma is
1: that you know the broad basket of human rights—you know, a roof over your head, clean water, um, education, healthcare, etc. Even the present government of China has has been doing a power of good. The trouble is, of course, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy, um, once basic needs are met. Human beings have very important needs that go beyond those basic needs. Sure. Uh, and that become a very important part of life. So it's good that people have been lifted out of absolute poverty, but people not only appreciate a chance for an education and for meaningful careers uh, jobs but they also would like and, and living in a uh, an environmentally physically a clean environment they'd like and a chance to express themselves culturally to make choices about individual sort of worldview convictions whether religious or otherwise and even if criticizing government doesn't result in it changing a sense that the government's listening to you and some sort of accountability now i don't think anyone was imagining china was going to quickly become democratic but what we have seen is this pivot away from a steady trajectory of, of growing openness towards consolidation of power around uh, one man and his uh, clique, his yeah. coterie, and uh, persecution of those who are seen as rivals, justified normally in terms of some sort of you know economic misdemeanours, corruption. In a country that has you know, serious problems with corruption, um, it meant that it was always possible to find something to take on your rivals with. Mm-hmm. Some, some cases, those rivals have, had been involved in clear wrongdoing, uh, and you could see a case for bringing to account. But of course, Chinese justice is not transparent. Uh, it doesn't have a, a proper system of accountability. If you're accused of a crime, that's 99% of the time, that's it. It's, it's a fait accompli. And so this was being used as a, as a political mechanism to exclude dissent and to control rivalries and intimidate others. The reaction we're seeing in Hong Kong, where a large percentage of the Hong Kong population is taken to the streets... This is where I wanted to go. Yeah. The reaction we're seeing is real anxiety that this one country, two systems uh, understanding is going to be quickly eroded. That if you criticise Beijing in Hong Kong, then you can be whisked off to the mainland and charged with whatever offences, we've, seen, right. we've yeah. seen booksellers and others charged with tax evasion etc. as a way of political intimidation.
0: Um, well, what one of the uh, points that's been made in Hong Kong was that uh, this time around in terms of how the, the sheer numbers and the volume of people is because the business community is upset by these laws. And they're not used to protesting or even or saying anything that's negative about China. But the issue they are now facing are the same issues that journalists, lawyers, and researchers, academics have all faced. And that, so I'm told, is that there are great lists in China of people who have paid bribes to make business. And mm. now they can simply say, well, we've got you for a, an alleged bribe made ten years ago, and we want you over here now, and we have a lovely camp where the uh, where we put the Uyghurs. Well, the, the
1: uh, Beijing uh, government uh, has long focused on, on data accumulation, whether it's espionage in industrial and and, uh, and and other forms around the world, or, or domestically. They have this belief that the accumulation of large amounts of data and the capacity to do effective data mining will give them power over time. And A lot of people in the big data area have, have long argued that we don't quite know how we're going to use this or right. how we get the capacity, but in, in time it'll be valuable. So companies, of course, like like Google and the Facebook empire, have built entire business models very effectively on this idea of, of big data. So too the Chinese government, um, and and they've been more transparent in recent times with the idea of a um, of a social credit score um, of sort of a star rating, determining you know uh, whether Luke or Greg are, are good citizens, slightly dodgy citizens, or very bad citizens, <laughs> and 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 um, using carrots and sticks in response. Mm-hmm. So they've got. Uh, information, uh, in many cases dirt, or they can certainly claim it to be dirt on, on pretty much everyone, so no one uh, is going to be able to stand up against this Now, one uh, school of thought which I guess inspires the, the optimism on the street in Hong Kong is if you stand up to the local Hong Kong authorities mm-hmm. uh, with large enough numbers and, and take care to do so in a fairly peaceful fashion, uh, they're going to be intimidated into standing up to Beijing Another school of thought, which I think is to, to my mind is more persuasive, is that this as uh, admirable as it is, uh, is, is a last hurrah for independent um, uh, political processes and legal processes in Hong Kong. That, right. that there's nothing that an administration in Hong Kong can ultimately do to send up to Beijing and the, the clear trajectory um, is unassailable that uh, we are going to see uh, Beijing having power over people living in Hong Kong as it has uh, over the rest of China. Um, given that she recently came out and suggested that within his tenure um, there would be reunification with Taiwan, you could hardly imagine that um, he's going to be dissuaded by some commitment to a, a, a two system uh, understanding with Hong Kong that will uh mean that you can get away with a level of dissent and and, and criticism in Hong Kong you can't uh, in the mainland I mean that's this has been a long time coming and I don't see any way of halting it I think the reality is that um not only will legally and and politically Hong Kong be completely under the control of Beijing but there may even be and there are people more expert than me in this I'm I'm, I'm just um speculating things that I don't understand very well there may well be a calculation in Beijing that let the economy in Hong Kong suffer, let there be a degree of investment flow outwards, capital flight. Uh, It's good for China as a whole. Hong Kong um, has has long lived past its utility as as a unique entrepot. Other cities have emerged along the coast Mm. and it's good to have a bit of a rebalancing. So it doesn't matter if there's some capital
0: flight because where are they going to go anyway? I think we've already already Mm. seen that. Uh, A lot of people are leaving Hong Kong. We've seen basically an evacuation uh, out of Cambodia and other other parts of the region. Uh, I was speaking to uh, uh, Stuart McDonald last week. We did a podcast with him and he was talking about uh, Western tourism in Myanmar and Cambodia and these sorts of countries and it's absolutely collapsed, which isn't reflected in the government numbers. Who like they like to cite Chinese tourism. Mm. How if the Chinese don't back down? And under the current leadership, that doesn't look at all possible. Uh, Without sounding like a warmonger, what are the chances of conflict?
1: Look, I can only speculate Try and be as transparent as I can Mm -hmm. in in that speculation. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not a China specialist, and I don't know any way of objectively evaluating the chances of war, but it seems to me that the possibility of military action across the Taiwan Straits are much more in the realm of the... um, you know, medium foreseeable term that was right. like the case even a few years ago. Right. So if she's to be taken at his word when he said um, he talked of reunification mm-hmm. on his watch, then I think we may see this coming
0: sooner than rather sooner than later. rather than later.
1: Well, let's just say the thing about war with China is it's it's not in anyone's interest, including China. I don't think China uh, is looking for military confrontation. It's hedging its bets and it plays a long game. So what it's done with three claimed artificial islands and shoals in the South China Sea mm-hmm. is a long-term strategy. And in and in fairness to China, when America had an opportunity to set up bases in places like Okinawa, it took it, and it has no intention of walking away from those bases. So China looked at that and said, OK, that gives them a strategic advantage. We'll match it. So leave aside the discussion about... The South China Sea the point is they've made a long-term investment which is going to be very hard for us to reverse in a time of outright confrontation something could be done about those bases but there are many and the infrastructure is complex and it would would drag us out so it's a deterrent to tacking on China now the most immediate and obvious source of conflict would come with a uh, initiative from Beijing to move across the Taiwan Straits in a process of so-called reunification of Taiwan which President Xi has foreshadowed as something that that could happen on his watch. The calculation in the past was that American response would make that too risky and and too high a cost and the Chinese military was not sufficiently mature to be able to do that and the government in Beijing would rather push for openness and international respect than to risk that. Now we have a government in Beijing that is um, very much uh, consolidated one one man and his coterie under uh, under President Xi, and this authoritarian populism comes at a time when authoritarian populism globally has strong support, so he's less embarrassed and and less held to account for it than maybe might have been the case in a a decade or two past. Uh, We have a Chinese military that's got enormous capacity, particularly on the IT and cyber side, but also on the Blue Water Navy side that is giving them a lot of confidence. We have an unstable administration in Washington that is reluctant to commit to, uh, one would think, if push came to shove, uh, very likely not to respond in, in going in um, in any sort of defense of Taiwan. And if America doesn't follow its allies are even weaker. Great Britain is not what it used to be. Europe is not sure. interested in more military adventures, the region certainly so doesn't want to be drawn in. So there may well be a calculation made that they can move across the straits and, and get away with it uh, quickly and decisively. And you could sort of see the logic of that. At the same time, if the Chinese economy really struggles, then one thing that might tip the hand in Beijing is engaging in some sort of distracting external activity, such as reunification with Taiwan, as a way of turning attention away from what's happening domestically. Uh, that's
0: been a long-standing argument too.
1: Well, we've seen that very clearly with Russia. What Russia is doing, what Vladimir Putin is doing in East Ukraine, for example, seems to be very much the um, seizing of Crimea calculated on playing into a a feel-good emotion at home about making Mother Russia great. And that plays very strongly. People, we just talked about elections, voters Mm. vote on an emotional basis for what they perceive to be their immediate personal needs, but also what makes them feel good. And Russians don't have a lot to feel good about, but Putin makes them feel good about the greatness of Mother Russia. A China which is struggling with a decade of economic growth, which is not what previous decades have offered, and is facing other problems might be distracted. Voters, well, not voters, but people who have a position to express dissent or otherwise to the government in Beijing might be more mollified uh, if China was showing its greatness in external activities. So that ramps the um, risk factor up for something happening. And if we have at the moment instability in Britain, uh, long-term important ally of America, we have an American president who seems quite open to uh, not responding to Chinese aggression, we have a U.S. defense establishment which doesn't know how to respond to a White House position, we have a a lot of increased capacity in um, uh, cyber, uh, both espionage but also offensive cyber capacity, including sort of embedded deep capacity, Mm -hmm. the the argument about Huawei has been very much about this embedded deep capacity, what would happen when push comes to shove, we don't really know, I don't think uh, Beijing wants any military confrontation, but if push came to shove, and that's the way wars have started over the last century, who knows what capacity China might ultimately use. I don't think they would use any more than they had to because they don't want to reveal their hand. They're thinking very much long term. But it may well be that we find ourselves in a very ugly, messy confrontation in which, at the very least, for fear of something worse, no one wants to stand up to Chinese military aggression. We have some very unpleasant things happening. All the signs point towards that being an increased risk
0: in the next decade or two. And that's something we wouldn't have said even five years ago. I'd just like to take the conversation back to uh, what you do specialize in, Mm. what you're quite renowned for is uh, terrorism islamic militancy and there seems to be two great potential threats there's the the grand threat of sovereign nations uh, whether it's russia china superpowers facing off and then there's the uh terrorism threat which seems to be an issue that people all over the world live with now and as we saw with the bombings in sri lanka and uh warnings that isis Uh, Trained militants would be returning home. There have been reports saying that the the number of jihadists has tripled over the last, well, since 9-11. Crystal ball gazing, which you're Mm. good at on this subject, how do you see that shaping up over the next five to ten years? Well, when it comes to terrorism, we're talking about a resilient problem
1: that is perhaps best understood. Uh, David Kilcullen expressed this years ago as a global insurgency. Uh, a low level global insurgency that becomes high level in certain spaces where good governance breaks down and you have state failure. So if you look at the Global Terrorism Index you find data visualisation making this nice and clear that there's a correlation between collapse of national government either at a nation level as a whole or at a, a, a regional level within say northern Nigeria what's happened in Syria with the civil war, uh, the problems that we brought on in Iraq, uh, ongoing problems in Afghanistan, Pakistan, mean that those five countries stand out as representing three quarters of all the terrorist deaths and and, and problems. So Mm -hmm. terrorism, we need to understand is not an existential problem, but it is a resilient problem and it flares up in certain areas where you've got a degree of state failure as an existential problem. We face threats that are existential that have nothing to do with terrorism, but right. they, would, they would increase the possibility of terrorism emerging. So I think the great existential threats of our time are the deterioration of the physical environment, mm-hmm. global warming, but also the uncertainty of climate change that comes with that. Not just climate change, but pushing our physical system to, to a tipping point. So we now have this concern that there could be more plastic in our oceans than fish within decades, uh, that we're ingesting significant amounts of plastic every week, that our our sort of throwaway disposable society has created problems that we didn't anticipate coming. We see collapse of ecosystems, bee populations, etc. You know, we could find real crises with with food and clean water and, and scarcity. That then feeds into, particularly in a context where you've got Um, increased storm severity, changed rainfall patterns due to to climate change. That puts pressure on political systems. We've seen with the Syrian Civil War although climatic environmental changes didn't cause the Civil War years of very severe droughts uh, leading up to the outbreak of Civil War in 2011 saw large populations move from fairly marginally viable uh, interior agricultural zones into the cities looking for work because suddenly these these, um, marginal agricultural areas weren't even viable anymore in the absence of rain. And that put political pressure. It was a contributing factor. It doesn't take too much imagination to see how changes in the Ganges River Delta could impact on countries like Bangladesh that are struggling at the best of times anyway. Bangladesh does a very good job in responding to the threat of floods. But there's a lot of other problems that could compound and cause troubles. Yeah. Problems in neighbouring Myanmar would impact on that. Problems in the Mekong Delta,
0: you can see how that can feed into. I was into just it. going to mention yep. that actually. Yep. I mean, we've seen a combination of droughts and dozen dams built upstream mm. to the point where the salinity rises as the mm. floods recede. Mm. And we're seeing the salinity levels now in the Mekong river coming from the ocean all the way up to the Cambodian border, which is killing off fish stocks, and there's 70 million people mm. who are relying on those fish stocks, and the unofficial population in, say, Phnom Penh at the moment is actually 5 million people, which mm. is an extraordinary figure compared with just 20 years ago when it was measured in hundreds of thousands. Yeah, for a city that wasn't and set up to you know, right. have had millions of people, much less 5 million. Yeah.
1: President Trump, of course, just famously muted the um, uh, intelligence uh, establishment on speaking out about uh, climate change as a, as a great threat. Now, the U.S. intelligence uh, and uh, security defense establishment is not known for being, you know, trendy left-wing. Uh, mm-hmm. They they talk in realistic terms. They have concerns. Everyone who looks at these issues has real concerns about. The longer term existential threats posed by changes in environmental, climatic systems, rainfall systems, storm Um. systems um, that lead to questions about food production, water supply in a planet that's passing 8 billion people on its way to conservatively 10 billion people. I mean this should be our great concern that we are stressing our physical environment anyway. Rich countries contribute disproportionately to their stress but also have some resilience in terms of the ways they can adapt. Poor areas of the world uh, which are pushed to the edge and have unstable political systems, and and that includes much of the Muslim majority world across North Africa and and, and through the Middle East and Asia, become much more vulnerable to uh, political unrest and and, uh, state failure. In that context, terrorism will be one of the mechanisms um, which which feeds into cycles of violence. So I don't see terrorism as an existential threat, but I certainly see it as a resilient, persistent threat that will come to occupy as much space as it can take, as much space as it's given. Sure. Which which is when the state recedes and fails, then the short-term expediency of terrorist methods feed into it being used by, by movements. It's not, right. it's not expedient in the long term, but it is in the short term. That's the way people are thinking. And a, in a world facing multiple crises, some of them due to the uh, pressures on the physical environment and growing population, um, this is surely going to be a
0: factor that figures prominently. I should also point out that... Uh, when we talk about terrorism terrorism is actually a type of warfare and it's cheap and it's nasty and it's a sort of warfare that people could make in their backyard garage and when people when they don't have much and they don't have access to food and water and their families are starving and they want to make a point whether it's Islamic militants or Christians or any other group with a political agenda it becomes a viable means of making a point. It's not efficacious in the long
1: run in the in the big Mm -hmm. picture uh but it's a cheap and quick way to uh for a a social and political movement to leverage its power the thing about terrorism you can sort of explain it or justify it in terms of the weapons of the weak argument Mm -hmm. for the movements involved that the power of terrorism comes on it being provocative so people ask the question why do terrorists do these outrageous things well they want us to be outraged because then we overreact 9-11 famously cost around half a million dollars, it's thought to put together, and uh, it's resulted in Change trillions allows. of dollars. I mean, uh, yeah. In America alone, more than $6 trillion and enormous damage in the Middle East. We didn't need to be provoked in responding to 9-11 by going in and toppling the Saddam regime in Iraq, but we were, yeah. and it wasn't that hard to get us provoked into doing that. We went to Afghanistan. Uh, it worked better than al-Qaeda Uh, had expected, you might say, well, Al-Qaeda paid a very heavy price. It was really knocked around very badly in terms of our response. Yes, but Al-Qaeda and its affiliates Mm -hmm. globally is multiple times stronger and and more numerous and more expert than it's ever been in the past. Al-Qaeda itself has played a kind of a low-key role. It's avoided 9-11-style major confrontations. It doesn't have the capacity at the moment. Our intelligence in, in, in Western democracies is sufficient to resist that threat. But it's playing a long game islamic state which is an al-qaeda spin-off of course as a result of our invasion of iraq uh, is is a more brutal version of the same ideology that says let's be even more outrageous and more provocative let's openly attack shias or christians and see what sort of response they get but the logic in all cases with terrorism if you do something outrageous and you provoke a response and it's that response which gives you power uh, and that's Proven to be a, a powerful mechanism that we'll see political actors using again and again. Of course, it's often mixed up with insurgency, and insurgency tends to emerge when you've got some problem with the nation-state, the national government, either delivering services or maintaining
0: legitimacy. Right. Uh, so, uh, I'm thinking Gemeris Islamiyah and Abu Sayf in the southern Philippines. Well, Abu Sayf um, in the
1: southern Philippines has done well out of an opportunity space where the government in, in Manila has been weak. In Indonesia democracy uh, and stability and economic growth has meant that Jammah Islamiyah has failed. It's, right. you know, the, re- the core leadership of Jammah Islamiyah when they returned from Afghanistan, the Afghan alumni, most of them said, this is not the time or the place for jihad, and right. so they turned away from violent jihad. The guys who engaged in the bombing were a, a splinter factions, just small individuals, handfuls of individuals, but very effective. But then Detachment 88 was developed in response to the Bali bombing of 2002 and has become very effective tactically at responding to the threat. So probably 1,400 arrests Mm -hmm. um, since uh, the formation of Detachment 88. Great success. Not so much great success when it comes to long-term rehabilitation of those caught up in these uh, malign networks. So you might put somebody away for four years for weapons possession. The laws in the past weren't really well-suited to prosecution. There's better laws available now, but even so, the, the, the... universal perennial problem with terrorism is that you can't make people disappear just through arresting them and even uh, successfully prosecuting them, you've got to deal with some degree of rehabilitation and disengagement. So Indonesia is struggling with that. But The big picture is that the the success of democracy and stability means that that even these splinter groups um, struggle. Islamic State probably got a thousand Indonesians to sign up for its cause and, and, and travel to Syria. Uh, but that's out of a nation of 270 million people, and 230 million Muslims. So it's it's not having great impact. It has more impact in places like Australia or France than it does in places like Indonesia. So there's an argument for saying if you get the basics right in terms of good governance, the power of uh, terrorism to be a spoiling effect is greatly diminished. But in the southern Philippines, we're seeing that provocative uh, occupying of the largest Muslim city, Morawi, mm-hmm. leading to the siege of Morawi, has led to the aerial bombing and uh, artillery shelling of Marawi such that hundreds of thousands of people are now displaced long-term, and those displaced people represents opportune populations to go and recruit from for the next wave of terrorism. So there's a cycle of violence in the southern Philippines which has not been adequately addressed, uh, which is not true, thankfully, in Indonesia or Malaysia or even in in Thailand. So I have mixed feelings about Southeast Asia when it comes to the the, uh, likelihood that terrorism will play a significant role, but I certainly think where we've got uh, state failure in areas like the southern Philippines, it will be a significant factor. And I can see, go forward 10 years Mm -hmm. with all sorts of pressures upon states to the extent that uh, we're struggling with food security, we have social and political unrest because of you know, serious problems with meeting people's basic needs, that political violence, including terrorism, will feature more prominently. And on that note, Greg Barton, thank you very much. My pleasure, Luke. Great chatting with you. And you.